1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear.
5: hello i'm dave musgrove and this is the first history extra podcast for june 2012 coming up we have
6: What we fail to understand is that however badly our prisoners of war, British, Australian Americans, uh, were treated um, by the Japanese, their treatment of the local populations was far worse.
5: That was Anthony Beaver on the Second World War. It's not what people are remembering, but how they're remembering it. And that was Sarah Ansari on oral history in post-partition India and Pakistan. Before we start, you ought to know this podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History Magazine, which is Britain's best selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents and on subscription, and if you go to our website, historyextra.com, you'll find details of the latest issue and the best current subscription deals. We're also available digitally. Our Kindle edition can be purchased direct from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available from the Apple Newsstand. For social media fans, we're also on facebook.com slash history extra and twitter.com slash history extra. Historian Anthony Bieber is best known for his books on individual battles and campaigns of the Second World War, such as D-Day, Berlin and Stalingrad. With his new book, he is bringing it all together in a single volume history of the Second World War. BBC History magazine's Rob Attar visited him in London a few weeks ago to discover what new things his book will bring to light and find out his views on
4: some of the war's biggest debates. Why did you decide to write this book about the Second World War?
6: Well, there are a number of um, reasons, obviously. Um, there's never a single one, but I suppose the real one is that I always felt a sort of a bit of a fraud in some ways. Um, when people consulted me as sort of you know a great expert on the Second World War and all the rest of it, when I knew perfectly well, there were large periods, large patches of ignorance. Um, and I'd always written before focusing on particular aspects, battles or um, campaigns and uh, aspects, uh, whether from the Spanish Civil War onwards. Um, but the whole thing didn't join up together. And I thought the vital thing... Uh, For me, as an education, is to understand how it all fitted together um, on a far more comprehensive basis. And by that, I meant including not just um, the Far East in the Second World War, but also the whole of, for example, the Sino-Japanese War and all the rest of it, because the debate will go on forever on, you know, when did the Second World War start? I mean, we've had all the debate about the long the long war. Did it start in 1914 or 1917 and carry all the way through to 1989? And when did the Second World War start? Um, and I mean, I'm on, it's never going to be resolved as a, as a dispute. Uh, most histories of the Second World War really start with the invasion of Poland um, at the beginning of September 1939 and more or less end with Hitler's, Hitler's death or perhaps even VJ Day. But in this particular book, I'm starting, um, I've started with uh, the Battle of Kalkin Gol on the Mongolian Manchurian frontier uh, in August 1939. It wasn't a huge battle, but my goodness, it had a very large influence on the pattern and the outcome of the Second World War. Um, And then with a sort of curious. um, the curious sort of pattern. Um, the whole war, in fact, really ended uh, exactly six years later, in uh, August, late August, um, nineteen forty-five, with Soviet armies sweeping across Manchuria, Mongolia, um, and North China. So, um, the I think our perspective, uh, even though it's improved a lot over recent years, that it's not just so Eurocentric or uh, British centric or whatever. Um, I think has widened out, but I still think that there are a lot of other elements which sort of need to be integrated, so that you can understand the knock-on effects of events in, say, the Far East on the war in Europe, and of course vice versa of the um, the Eastern Front and the effect um, that it might have on on the on the Far East or even in in the West. And I was always struck by sort of Ian Kershaw's excellent book of um, fateful choices on the decision making knock-on effects um but i think that it one can go further and this is what i've tried to do in terms of the um strategic knock-on effects as well as obviously the decision-making effects Uh, so anyway that's the um that's that's sort of the main main reason for it
4: and so what kind of new light do you think your book will shed on the war
6: there's no way that one can sort of you know um there are lots of sort of say, i think minor um aspects uh which certainly shook me um and of which i was unaware and became more aware later later, later on um you know um it's not a question of sort of listing them in any particular order or anything like that but uh inevitably i think that uh the scope of the horrors in the Far East I think has been under uh, reported in many ways mainly because what we fail to understand is that however badly our prisoners of war British, Australian, Americans uh, were treated um, by the Japanese their treatment of the local populations was far worse I mean when one looks at the casualty rate on the Burma Railway um, you know roughly a sort of a third very roughly a third of Uh, Allied prisoners of war died in the course of the building of the Burma Railway. Well, it was over half of the the, um, local population who were forced in as forced labour. There are other aspects too. I mean, I was totally unaware of the way that the um, Japanese actually kept prisoners as meat, i.e. kept them alive, to butcher them later as as meat, and this was this was throughout the whole of the Japanese um, army throughout the whole of the Imperial Japanese army. It wasn't just isolated incidents. Um, when they were cut off, when the American submarine cut off uh, the um, um, supply routes. Um, they were told, you know, to um, adopt self-sufficiency. That was the order from um, Japan, from Imperial General Headquarters. Um, And that basically meant not only stealing the food of the locals, um, but using them where they could as meat and um, allied prisoners of war, and particularly Indians, those who refused to join the Indian National Army. And um, this was actually suppressed at the end of the war and didn't even come up at the Tokyo War Crimes War Crimes Tribunal um, because people the authorities were so afraid of the effect that that would have on families back in the States, Britain, Australia or whatever. Um, the idea that, you know, wondering whether um, their father, their brother or son uh, who died in a prisoner of war camp with the Japanese, whether he'd been eaten.
4: Well, is, is that well known? Because I'd never heard that before that... But-
6: I didn't know it either. Um, but in fact, there's an excellent book. And I mean, well, I got some amount of material there and um, from other sources um, by um, an acad- um, um, a Japanese academic w- in Australia called Tanaka, um, who has done, 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 done a huge amount of research into this particular matter. But uh, I think it's very, very striking that, um, that the Allies suppressed all information on this. But I mean, anyway, there, and there are, there are a number of other things. I mean, finally, also uh, on the Eastern Front, um, I think that the evidence now is absolutely clear um, that, uh, for example, David Glantz's theory that um, about Operation Mars and the counteroffensive around Ruzhev, uh was supposed to be sort of co-equal to the attack at Stalingrad, um, the huge counterattack and the uh, surrounding of the Sixth Army. But I think it's become absolutely clear now with uh, more information from the Russian archives uh, that that was not the case, that it was definitely a uh, complete diversion. They launched these massive attacks um with um, that with um, several armies um and without giving them proper artillery support. and um the the key question is that Armies at Stalingrad, in fact, uh, in their counteroffensive, um, had um, something like four times the artillery ammunition um, that they had at um, Reserve. So basically, these armies were being sent to their doom. And the other thing is, of course, that um, in um, the secret uh, aspect of the um, spy network of uh, the GRU and uh, NKVD. Um, it's now been revealed in fact that uh, without Zhukov's knowledge uh, the information on the attack was actually given past to the germans through um somebody who was who the germans thought was actually one of their spies but in fact was actually um a kgb i'm sorry nkvd plant right and um um Galen, who was the head of the um, of German um, Foreign Army's East Intelligence, uh, was absolutely convinced that by the, his stories, and he, they provided him. They're very cleverly done. They provided him with a lot of information, all the rest of it. And he he in fact was ordered to pass on the information, um, giving the details of this attack, so that the Germans pinned all their strength in on the central part of the front and not down around the South Stalingrad area. So it was a massive diversion plan and a massive uh, maskirovka in a way uh, of concealing, concealing the true nature. Um, so I think that the sort of the glance theory on Operation Mars, um, although he brought in a huge amount of important information because it had been suppressed uh, by Russian military authorities, but um, considering the appalling losses um, of men who were sacrificed for what was basically... Uh, a completely artificial, if you like, uh, operation. Um, it was hardly surprising, therefore, that the Red Army kept this kept this very quiet. So yes, there are a number of number of sort of you know aspects in that particular way. But I think the real difference between this book and others a, is is simply in the way the one you know the way I write it or whatever. From that point of view of of doing not a sort of mm, a great overview and perhaps adding in a few personal accounts or whatever um but the way the only way i can really write myself and enjoy writing which is as a narrative history with sort of it's got to have the drive i mean I, it's very easy for um people often ask you know do you um what audience do you write for um Well, the answer is one's got to be totally self-centred. You've got to write for yourself. I mean, I write the sort of book that I would actually enjoy reading, and it's got to have new material. Uh, Otherwise, I don't see the point of of the book. Um, uh, It's got to have uh, a lot of, obviously, of human interest, because otherwise I don't see um, the point, Uh, because you're not actually going to convey the real circumstances, the real experience of ordinary soldiers and ordinary uh, civilians caught up in these appalling events, but above all, it's also got to have narrative drive, um, and that obviously was the, the main problem for me at the beginning. I mean, I was actually terrified at one stage because I was just so overwhelmed yeah. by all of the material, and I felt that I had to. I, I did. I tried to start it off by trying to write in the way that I'd written the other books, um, which was to um finish all the research before actually starting to write and i i tried starting off that way and then I realized i was just going to get i was just getting totally swamped um there was no way i would just drown um so thank god i recognized that pretty early on because otherwise i could have wasted a lot of time and i realized that i just had to focus uh, bit by bit as i as i went along and um and that that worked and suddenly things started falling into place the real challenge i think on a book like this um is obviously is structure and then marshalling of material according to the to that structure and if you can get that right um then things do fall into place and then you do get that narrative drive um and you don't have to sort of just do the olympian um overview approach uh which sort of i think which most which most um i think which may, most sort of writers tend to adopt when they're sort of trying to do such a very very broad canvas but anyway that's the sort of I suppose basically what's what's, what's different about uh, about the book in that particular way
4: and it sounds like you're also trying to emphasize some of the maybe not necessarily lesser theaters but theaters people don't know as much about in the book
6: I'm not trying to emphasize them I mean I'm you know, it's how do you, how do you sort of do a representative uh, account you know um, The trouble is that obviously the sino-japanese war is there are very few um, good accounts of it. I mean, that's actually been an excellent book recent, recently, um, made up of, um, um, a whole range of academics from China, Japan, and, um, and, and United States and elsewhere, um, edited by Hans van der Ven, which is, um, which is superb. But I mean, you know, the, 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 there is, there is really no overall, uh, um, account of the Sino Japanese War, which one can follow. There's certainly lots in the sort of political angle and, and so forth. Um, uh, but the important thing is to be able to bring to um, other audiences um, what the reality of that war was, because I mean, it's actually beyond our normal imagination. Um, uh, you know, to understand what it meant for um, the Chinese is is very hard. I mean, the thing which surprised me the most um, is that um, the book, this book's been snapped up in Japan. Um, considering what I've been writing, um, it was the very last thing I had imagined, uh, which actually I found rather encouraging, because I was always rather afraid of the way that um, the Japanese were extremely protective of their history i mean ian kershaw said to me as um only slightly joking saying you you may have thought you had trouble with the russian archives he said you tried the japanese archives um and it's true i mean i didn't try the japanese archives because i i knew it was an absolute absolute nightmare um of the way that one's likely to be thwarted and as ian rightly sort of said you know it's even worse than the um the russian in that that was a sense um but there are now, thank God, you know, Japanese historians, um, Tanaka being a very good example, uh, who are bringing out uh, a lot of um, new material and um, um, are sort of, you know, um, being completely undefensive um, about the country's history. I mean, they're just interested in understanding, which, let's face it, is the proper role of the historian.
4: What would you say now? Or who would you blame, for example, for the origins of the war? Can we lay the blame at the draw of the axis, or is it, was it more of a kind of global meltdown?
6: Well, nothing is inevitable in history, that uh, mantra which all historians have to keep reminding themselves of. Um, and certainly the conditions for instability uh, as a result of the world economic crisis, um, the flaws in the Versailles agreement and treaty and um, if you like the Versailles version of Europe uh, were were great but they didn't have to lead to war um, there is no doubt that Hitler was one person um, totally counter to the Tolstoy theory of history um, but Hitler really was the one person who did create the second world war uh, Japan would not have gone to war on its own against um, the United States or anything like that. Against China, yes, but it would never have attacked uh, Britain and the United States as it did in 1941 if there had not been the war in Europe started by Hitler. So from that point of view, one can say quite clearly, um, as I think virtually all historians uh, of the period uh, would accept, you know, um, that Hitler was um, the prime person responsible for the Second World War in the form that it took. There would certainly have been other conflicts during that particular period um, when one thinks of oh, the Sino-Japanese War and all the rest of it and uh, um, and, and, and the uh, Spanish Civil War. Um, but such a conflagration um, was definitely created by Hitler.
4: Do you think it's conceivable that the Axis could have ever won the war or were they, were they always really going to lose in the end?
6: Well, the interesting point is that, uh, you know, one can have so many arguments about the sort of definite turning points in the war, Uh, but I think it is pretty clear now. If if Churchill had, say, lost his nerve or been forced to, say, give in to Halifax uh, for one reason or another in uh, late May 1940, uh, then obviously the situation would have been completely different. I mean, there would not have been any um unsinkable aircraft carrier for the United States to launch um an invasion of Europe, um a counter invasion of Europe um in nineteen forty four or later on, later on. Um Hitler would have, would have been triumphant. Now, how things would sort have of planned out later on, we don't know. Um, I mean, he, whether the whether United States would have been able to have uh, um, supported Stalin against Hitler um, um, a year later, once Hitler had, um, say, conquered Britain. But you see, if uh, Britain had given in and, say, made some sort of humiliating peace treaty, Uh, in 1940, um, Hitler would have been in a position then to have have concentrated um, not just more forces um, on the Eastern Front at a critical moment, uh, but also in in terms of the Luftwaffe. Um, So from that point of view things might have been very different. One has to remember, I mean one of the things I've argued actually also in the book, which I think is sort of slightly different um, to other accounts, is the way that we underestimate however much we may condemn or want to condemn the strategic bombing offensive on Germany on moral grounds, Mm -hmm. um, it did actually have much stronger military grounds than anybody, certainly Jörg Friedrich or its great critics have um, accepted. It did have much greater uh, military grounds uh, in the sense that the way the um, Luftwaffe was forced to withdraw um, the the bulk of its fighter squadrons from the Eastern Front Mm -hmm. uh, to protect... Um, the Reich from um, Allied bombers, um, made a huge difference uh, on the Eastern Front because, basically, German uh, photo reconnaissance flights were not able to um, see what the Red Army was preparing. And I'm now talking, obviously, of 1943, Mm -hmm. 1944. And when one thinks of the massive Maskirovka, again, of the sort of deception operations carried out by the Red Army, which were astonishingly successful... You know, Operation Bagration uh, would not have um, succeeded in the way that it did, you know, if the Luftwaffe had been stronger on the Eastern Front, um, to um, use their photo reconnaissance behind the lines to see what um, the Red Army was doing. Because, in fact, they'd moved massive armies from the south. The Germans were expecting the real attack to come again in the south. Mm. Um but in fact um Stalin was moving them all up to the n- up to the north for this massive encirclement of army group centre so um you know that is that is one aspect the importance of the Luftwaffe therefore on the eastern Front is very very great indeed um and would um a much larger uh, force in one thousand nine hundred and forty one with Britain out of the war uh, have been able to uh, make a critical um, difference Um, obviously again we're into the realms of of counterfactual history I mean I wouldn't go any further than that but I think the only way I like counterfactual history is to raise questions Um, I think playing games trying to answer those questions is uh, certainly beyond me and I think actually it should be beyond most historians put it that way.
4: And so you mentioned earlier about the turning points of the war I mean Mm -hmm. you've obviously written about things like D-Day and Stalingrad in the past would you say that something like Stalingrad was that the moment where the Allies essentially won the war?
6: No. Um, I would put it in a different way. Stalingrad was the psychological turning point of the war. Uh, the geopolitical turning point of the war came earlier with basically December 1941. I mean, when uh, the Wehrmacht was stopped in its tracks outside Moscow and then uh, America entered the war because Hitler declared, uh, declared war on the Americans after Pearl Harbor um, on the 11th of December... Um, That really was the geopolitical turning point of the war. There was no way that Hitler could ever win the war after that. And almost he was doomed to to lose it uh, simply because, you know, the geopolitical lineup was so huge against him, um, particularly in industrial terms. So um, I think there one can say December 1941. Some people put it sort of as late as, um, as, late, as, late as um, Kursk in the Battle of Kursk in 1943. I, I, I find that astonishing. I mean, it's obvious that, um, um, that it came much earlier. I mean, the trouble was that 1942 was an absolute terrible year um, for the Allies, uh, both for um, the Red Army and um, the Retreat into the Caucasus and uh, beaten all the way back to the Volga at Stalingrad, but um, and and actually, you know, everyone thought that it was, uh, you know, Rommel was going to break through and the uh, Germans were going to link up, link link up in the Middle East, um, and that tends to obscure the fact actually that the the Wehrmacht had definitely overreached itself. I mean, it had it had reached that sort of critical point of overstretch, um, and was bound, in fact, to start to collapse fairly rapidly after that. But that, of course, was, you know, Hitler's overweening, overweening ambition.
4: So was Allied victory as much a question of logistics and it was, a, say, military superiority?
6: Oh, absolutely. I mean, when one um, thinks about it, I mean, at an earlier stage... Um, de Gaulle recognized in his um, great appeal to France on the 18th of June, 1940, and in sort of subsequent ones, um, that um, France had been beaten by um, a superior mechanization. Well, that actually wasn't actually true, because actually the French French had better tanks and more of them. It was just the way they were used. But uh, de Gaulle, more importantly, predicted that the war would be won through mechanization. And then Stalin, when he met Beaverbrook Harriman in Moscow, um, you know, he said straight away the war will be won by, by, by the side which can produce the most most engines. Um, and yes, you know, when one had seen already that this was going to be a war of mechanisation, it wasn't just a blood and guts uh, war of um, numbers of soldiers on each side or whatever it might be. Um, we'd move beyond that stage of the First World War. Um, and um, the development of air power, the development of um, tank warfare and all the rest of it um, was basically uh, handing victory um, to the major industrial power um, or if you like the superior industrial powers Um, and say from that point of view Germany in fact was was doomed because it could never outproduce the combination of um, the United States Britain and the Soviet Union
4: how much of the Allied victory do you think should be is owed to the leadership? Did the Allies have better leaders than, say, the Germans and the Japanese?
6: um it depends at what level one's talking of leadership um if you're talking of the very very top uh yes of course um the allies in fact did have better leadership i mean my goodness there we also had the problems of coalition warfare um you know which is uh as they say there's only one thing worse than fighting fighting with an ally and that's fi- not fighting with an ally um and um you know General Patton, for example, was arguing, arguing that they should always fight in different theatres, you know that they should never have to fight alongside each other because otherwise they'd end up hating each other more than they'd ended up hating the enemy. Well that was an exaggeration, of course. Um, but there were terrible tensions which Stalin found hugely amusing and so forth. Uh, but the main point was though that um, the chiefs of staff system um, and the way that they worked with the uh, political masters was extremely effective. Um, obviously they made mistakes, obviously, you know, um, they made made various misjudgments. Um but overall it was um hugely effective. Now we see a, a curious um a reserve, a reverse graphs um almost paralleling each other um but in a sort of uh, mirror image uh, is the way that sort of Hitler uh, at the beginning of the war Um, basically was uh, a fairly inspired leader because Hitler's genius lay in assessing the weakness of others and uh, exploiting that weakness. Um, But that was his only talent, really. Uh, So we saw how um even though okay well something wasn't his idea but he he saw the potential of manstein's plan but yet he was panicking all the time um thinking my god you know is this going to work and all the rest of it thinking it was over ambitious um but he uh was still prepared to sort of back it as far as he, he he could in the circumstances but from then on And certainly from the time of uh, 1941, i.e. the real turning point of December 1941, um, Hitler then became completely sclerotic. I mean, he would not allow any form of um, retreat, um, any form of flexibility amongst his uh, field commanders. Um, And that, of course, was catastrophic. I mean, they were cut off time and time again because of Hitler's refusal to withdraw um, and refusal to make use of actually the great German army's advantage, which was Bewegungskrieg, I mean war of movement, um, and by forcing them to hold ground in a sort of First World War, um, in a First World War uh, manner, um, their great advantage of um, of, of movement of mechanized warfare, uh, where they could actually defeat larger numbers, uh, as soon as they were tied down. Um, and they were in smaller numbers than the Red Army. Um, they were bound to be destroyed in the longer term. So uh, uh, that loss of uh, the war of movement um, and that sort of petrification uh, of sort of German defence um, was actually the, the really disastrous influence of Hitler's uh, of Hitler, Hitler's leadership. Now Stalin, on the other hand, was disastrous at the beginning,
4: yeah.
6: um, but then actually became. Um, a very good war leader. Um, That didn't mean that in any way he spared soldiers lives. He was prepared to waste them in the most um, terrifying way, that's certainly true. Um, But in the fighting of that particular war, uh, he was actually extremely effective and he started to give his uh, marshals and generals their, their head. Um, I mean, he obviously oversaw it, but he he could then sense uh, that they were not operating on the basis of absolute fear of the NKVD, which was case case in forty one, um, where they could have been arrested at any moment, and as a result, they were absolutely sitting ducks for the Germans. And, um, but by forty two and um, late forty two, uh, when Stalin suddenly realised that actually the best way was not to interfere too much, but was to. Um, give them and make them use their own um, talents and imagination, um, then the war turned very, very rapidly in the favour of the Red Army.
4: Do you think it's too simplistic to describe the Second World War as a moral war between good and evil?
6: Uh, Yes, of course it is. Um, You know, um, Anne Applebaum and a number of historians, Timothy Snyder in his excellent book, Um, bloodlands i mean they quite rightly show that you know there was a huge moral dilemma um right at the center of um allied strategy um which was basically we we were going to surrender half of europe um um you know the price of liberating one half of europe was going to be surrendering the other half to uh, a dictatorship which was in many ways um um one almost as appalling as um as hitler's so uh, yes um there were numerous ones uh, michael burley in his um, book um, on sort of moral combat or whatever um addresses the whole question of uh, all of the sort of uh, moral debates that are uh are there um, one can never talk entirely of black and white. I mean, the whole debate over the um, strategic bombing offensive shows sort of the areas of grey. But, you know, I think that's actually I mean, its part of the fascination of the whole of the Second World War, and one of the reasons why it's, it, it still exerts uh, a fascination and an interest you know 70 years on I remember in 1995 when the, it was the 50th anniversary at the end of the Second World War and all the books on the subject failed to sell and you thought my god this is the end of the subject and since I was starting research in Stalingrad and I was working in Moscow at the time uh, I found this deeply depress- depressing but you know I it doesn't in many ways it didn't surprise me but we were all wrong Um, suddenly sort of, you know, the interest in the subject. But this is a larger question on sort of why the writing of history had changed, and we hadn't seen how human interest or interest in the story had changed, which was then much more focused on the the fate of the individual caught caught up in these uh, horrific events. The idea of the Good War, of course, then is a, um, a hugely complex one. But At the same point, it is actually part of the reason for the fascination of the subject, because moral choice lies at the heart of human drama. And interestingly, when we're living in a sort of post-military environment, a sort of health and safety environment, and also in one where we have to be non-judgmental, and therefore. The moral issues are not sort of uh, don't have the same dramatic effect as the past. Um, It's hardly surprising that you know so many novels are set in the past, to the exasperation of many people. But um, you know, um, but I think you know it's 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 a recognition of the fact um, that things which mattered so much then uh, in sort of moral terms. Uh, Provide a drama which is which is sort of almost um, unthinkable today. And I do uh, I do believe that, uh, particularly say amongst the young, the interest which is sort of revived or uh, continues uh, in the subject of the Second World War is this feeling of sort of you know what would I have done if I'd been there? You know, would I have survived physically? Would I have survived psychologically? Uh, And I think that that one actually is uh, a key is a sort of a key a key element.
4: One that the the big choices Britain had to make was whether to ally itself with the Soviet Union. Was that a justifiable decision, considering the war they were fighting?
6: Absolutely, there was no there was no alternative whatsoever. Um, and one's got to remember a number of other um, aspects. I mean, um, Churchill made it perfectly cl- clear that uh, he had no truck with the um, Soviet Union, um, and yet at the same time, um, the evil nature of the the Nazi regime was so great um, that, you know, it had to be my enemy's enemy as my friend. Um, And I think that most people have recognized it. I mean, um, Andrei Sakharov, the great scientist and uh, and Soviet dissident, um, said quite rightly, in my view, that um, um, Stalin may have killed more people, but um, Hitler had to be defeated first. And that's absolutely true because uh, when one looks at things like the hunger plan, Bakker's hum- hunger plan, and the, uh, the, the. I mean, that, if it had been fully implemented as the Nazi leadership hoped, uh, would have killed far more people than the whole of the Holocaust. I mean, uh, several times more. So from that point of view, the um, there was no choice. I mean, Nazism had to be had to be defeated first. Anyway, there was no question of being able to defeat communism at that particular stage or Soviet, Soviet communism, and that was not sort of you know that wasn't even on the on the agenda. So um, Churchill no had absolutely um, no um, no alternative, and I, I think that those sort of uh, uh, shall we say counterfactual historians or Whatever, like sort of, you know, Alan Clark uh, trying to argue that you know Britain should have made peace with Germany in in nineteen forty to have preserved our empire and all the rest of it, uh, talking um, really rather dangerous uh, rubbish. You know it's quite preposterous that uh, to believe uh, that somehow we could have uh, done some sort of deal with Hitler name perfectly well the way that Hitler broke every single agreement that he ever made um we you know, we would have been um forcibly uh, disarmed and um and then we would have found ourselves as a sort of completely sort of finial um, state under more or less under. Uh, his control, if you like, r- r- the equivalent almost of uh, of sort of, vi- uh, of Vichy France. So from that point of view, um, I didn't think there's any any doubt at all.
4: And nowadays, there quite a lot of people see are uh, distorting Second World War history for perhaps modern political purposes. Do you think that books like this might help challenge that, so that people get the story straight?
6: Well, I hope so. I hope that by sort of integrating uh, all of these particular aspects um and in some cases dealing dealing with some of the conspiracy theories and there are a number of them which of course have to be tackled one of them was um and the idea that uh, a document of uh, may 1941 showing that uh, uh, the, the the red army was planning a spoiling attack um and this was sort of distorted into trying to show that uh um, Stalin was secretly planning to attack Germany, so therefore the German invasion of the Soviet Union was justified. Uh, that actually is a complete of rubbish. Now, one cannot rule out the possibility that Stalin may have considered a preemptive attack on the Soviet Union in 1942 or whatever, uh, afterwards because he was afraid of uh, Hitler's power and the threat from um, Germany. Um, now, that that is, a, that is a different matter, but in the circumstances, there was no question of the Red Army being in any... F- shape or form capable of launching um an effective attack uh in any way um all of the tanks um sorry the artillery tractors um, were actually being used to bring in the harvest, and I mean, you know, there was, so so the, the the idea of the idea of a sort of preemptive strike at that particular time is absolute rubbish. So one does need to sort of, you know, uh, uh, there are the conspiracy theories about, you know, um, the suppression of the attack on Pearl Harbor, or um, sorry, the suppression of news of the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, and, and so forth. Well, I mean, you know, you can go back and forth. The trouble with conspiracy theories is, you know, they will they will find one or two. Um, Uh, flaws in say a government report or in a a particular account Um, and then what they'll do is they'll start joining up all the wrong dots uh, so to sort of create a a monstrous picture Um, and um, frankly no I don't think so I mean uh, warnings had been sent out you know uh, time and again um in the course of the previous weeks um saying you know war with japan is uh, a distinct possibility um so you know prepare uh the problem was that they had uh, they it was beyond their imagination that the japanese would actually get all the way to pearl harbor because of the distance and, and, and so forth um and um there was a case in fact with the within the department of, um, of defense or within the um that uh Uh, General Gero had uh, decided not to send a pass on the latest sort of uh, warning report. He said that, you know, they've had so many reports already. But one cannot say, therefore, that there was a sort of, you know, a conspiracy or somehow that Churchill had something to do with it yeah. um, because um, he wanted to force America into the war. Um, this was entirely a sort of an American affair. And America was reading, the United States were reading uh, um, Japanese um, diplomatic ciphers, as we know perfectly well, and diplomatic traffic. What's far more striking, and this is seldom, um, seldom brought out, is um, Stalin knew by then, mm. of course, because we'd had October, he was able to bring his, and uh, November, he was bringing his Siberian divisions eastwards. And he knew that the Japanese were going to attack South. But was there any warning from Stalin? What the hell? Um, so, you know, um, it's, it's always a question of, um, you know, uh, trying to attack Churchill or Roosevelt, um, but seldom a question of attacking um, Stalin. Similarly, you know, the, um, the, the, all the sort of theories about why. Um, the Allies didn't bomb Auschwitz or the uh, prison camps. Well, actually, there are some very straightforward reasons for that. Um, The chief one being, A, the distance in flight time, and so that bomb load would have been very light, and B, the inaccuracy of their bombing, you know, they knew perfectly well. When they did try and bomb um, prisons, whether in Amiens or in Copenhagen, um, to release Uh, to release prisoners you know that was actually using that was actually using uh, mosquitoes which were extremely accurate well they still ended up killing far more civilians um, than people who were saved so I mean they knew already that that wasn't going to work but there are tremendous conspiracy theories on sort of you know why the Allies didn't do more to stop the final solution with uh, bombing Um, but they never present the question on why didn't Stalin uh because he was closer, he had better yeah. intelligence, um and um with his Sturmoviks and other aircraft, you know they could certainly have done much more in that particular way. But Stalin of course was just simply not interested.
4: And just one last question. Do you think there will ever be another conflict of the same magnitude as the Second World War? Or was that really was the war to end all wars in that sense
6: well I think it was in many ways the war to end all um, um conventional wars in that uh, in that sense uh I mean there were other much more localized ones like Korea and so forth um where you had conflicts between massive conscript armies and um it's it's the age of the conscript army has um, almost gone I mean Uh, You'll still have, you know, the PLA and um, China and so forth and obviously North Korea. Um, But on on a global scale, uh, we will not see, you know, so many millions uh, under arms because that phase of warfare has completely passed. It's far more specific. It's far more um, professional and um, technical uh so i don't think i don't think we'll ever we will never see as as i say a mass conscription world war in that particular sense but you know we may well see other conflicts which will be uh, could well be alarming i mean particularly if they are sort of uh, um in the, in the, in say in the, in the middle east uh, but it will not we will not see um sort of you know the mass attacks of infantry or even even of armor Um, simply because they will be far too vulnerable to higher technology.
0: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire?
2: You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear
5: that was Anthony Beaver. His book, entitled The Second World War, has just been published by Weidenfeld Nicholson. You can read a version of this interview in the June issue of Beeves History magazine on sale now in the UK. And for more on Anthony Beaver, visit his website, anthonybeaver.com. Dr Sarah Ansari of Royal Holloway University of London is an expert on the recent history of South Asia, in particularly those parts of the subcontinent that became Pakistan in 1947. She's recently led an Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project exploring the aftermath of partition after 1947. So I caught up with her to find out more. You worked on a a research project recently, uh, the title of which, as you just told me, was From Subjects to Citizens, and it was looking at uh, partition and the aftermath of partition in India and Pakistan uh, from 1947 onwards, I suppose. Um, So I think the first question that, that would be useful for our readers is would you be able to just very briefly sketch the context to the to the story what was happening in 1947 okay. uh, on, on the subconscious yes
3: then? well um i'm sure a lot of your readers will know that in 1947 british india became two independent states india and pakistan and so um in august of that year when independence took place um the country was in effect partitioned and with that partition came an immense um Degree of violence, dislocation, upheaval. You know, two countries being carved out of one colonial empire. Um, Fifteen million people or so migrated in both directions on the western side of the continent, so across really the Punjab border, the new Punjab border, and not so many numbers, but still substantial. So migration occurred in the east as well, around Bengal. Mm. So we're talking about, a. it sounds a bit of a cliche, but a seismic event. So it wasn't just that that part of the world got independence, but how it got independence. Yeah. And um, partition has been blamed, I suppose, or the legacy of partition is blamed for a lot of the um, poor Relations between India and Pakistan since forty-seven. That might not be one hundred percent accurate, but that's the general perception that the way in which the countries became independent created this this long-term distrust of each other that you know still exists today.
5: Okay. So, what were you looking at in, in your project? And you were trying to trace the story subsequent to that yeah. to see what actually happened.
3: Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, if we look at how partition's been studied by historians. Um, First of all, sort of, sort of, say 20, 30 years ago, people focused very much on the high politics of partition. You know, what the political leaders—Mountbatten, um, Nehru, Gandhi, Jinnah—you know, what they were discussing, what they were agreeing, what they were disagreeing over. But you know, the how partition happened from the high politics perspective, then um, triggered, I think, to a degree large extent by what was happening, <coughs> excuse me, in India politically, but also anniversaries of partition, people started to look at um, what partition meant to ordinary people, what it actually meant to be, become a refugee and to have to set up life on a, in a very different part of so, so the perspective shifted to sort of one from below. And then we've come along, we came along, and we decided... Well, we felt we wanted to approach things again a little bit differently. Um, partition wasn't just an event confined to a few months in late 1947. It was a process that really went on for decades afterwards, um, in the sense that it took that, it took a very long time for, for um, the new... Arrangements to settle into place. So, the afterlife of the immediate partition is something that historians, including us, are looking at much more now than used to be the case. So, that's the context in which our project was located.
5: And what sort of sources do you have to, to explore that? Is it was it, is there a lot of oral testimony? Is it oral history you're looking at? Or, or, it's a
3: mixture because it's not so far into the past, though, obviously 60, 70 years now since partition itself, um, people are starting to to fade away. But we drew on a mixture of sources. We drew on, yes, some oral testimonies. Um, My colleague, Will, um, conducted an awful lot of um, interviews with um, retired former provincial civil servants who had worked in the part of India, UP, that he focused his part of our project on. Um,
5: Maybe
3: Uttar Pradesh. Uttar Pradesh, mm. which, which had been the United Provinces during mm. the British period. So he and his research assistants in India spent a lot of time interviewing um, these, as I said, retired provincial civil servants because we, what we were looking at um, was what we what's come to be thought of as the everyday state, the, the state at the level that ordinary people interact with it, rather than the state up at the sort of higher level kind of higher level of how it operates. The 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 state that, as I said, um, ordinary Indians, ordinary Pakistanis had to encounter, had to deal with, had to negotiate in the years since independence because people in that part of the world had huge expectations of what differences independence would bring. The period just before partition or independence had been a very tough one. The Second World War was, uh, you know, had really revealed problems in the way that the administration was operating, that and the fact that there were the war effort, war shortages, not war shortages, um, food shortages, all sorts of things like that, gave a lot of room for black marketeering, corruption, and so people's confidence in the state was very low by 1947. So they, I think, expected, and this is generalising, but they expected that when independence came, things would improve, mm. things would get better, and so you have that expectation alongside the reality, which was things didn't necessarily get better. Sometimes they actually deteriorated in terms of, say, corruption and um, other kinds of abuse of, of power. So, um,
5: What was that optimistic expectation based on? I mean, it's, it's obviously with the benefit yeah. of hindsight, it's quite a naive expectation. Yes. I mean, who was who was telling them that things were going to be better?
3: Um, i I I suppose implicit in a lot of the nationalist rhetoric was that with the departure of of the British, then Indians or Pakistanis, but people from that part of the world would have, you know, would be able to um, operate in ways, in different ways, in cleaner ways. I mean, a lot of different parts of the world suffered, in inverted commas, the same disappointment. I mean, you see it you know, across the African continent, for instance, that huge, huge expectations that independence would bring tangible benefit to individual lives were, were were frustrated by the realities. Because so many of these, you know, former colonial states, it's they face, you know, huge challenges of actually turning promises into realities. And so, um, you know, the outcome is often... Frustration and disappointment and then that feeds into the politics Now obviously India and Pakistan have d- very different political histories since independence and India in many ways seems to have been much more of a success story than Pakistan when it comes to um, making that transition but he, you know I looked at the Pakistan side of the story Will looked at the Indian side of the story, and then Taylor, the third person in our project, was focusing on what had been a princely state in South India, Hyderabad or Hyderabad, as some people call it, and its kind of incorporation into the new Indian Republic, and the the, the sa- same sets of issues, but in a in a, in a different context. Yeah.
5: Um, Did you look at the the violence, the the, the violent uh, yeah. partition specifically, and after? I mean, um,
3: was- not so much, um, because I think. We were looking more at what happened after that sort of first, first few months when which, which were very violent. And, and yes, at, later on there are reoccurrences of violence, but we were looking, in our project, while well, taking account of this backdrop you know, of violence, dislocation, conflict, we were trying to focus on, as I said, how, how people who are now citizens as opposed to subjects engaged with the new states... That they were now that they now belonged to. And how did they do that?
5: What 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 was the process of transition from subject to citizen? Then how how would you characterise that?
3: Um, I think a a, a bit of a a a rocky, unsteady, unsteady one, um, because you know that that things didn't didn't improve to the extent that people corruption continued. um, Low level um, civil servants. Proved themselves to be just as tricky to deal with as they had been, you know, before, um, because after the initial or the 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 violence, let's say, of partition had subsided somewhat, um, in the two both countries, Pakistan and India, suspicion of minorities. I mean, we looked at quite a lot at the position of minorities in what was left, well, the minor- minorities rather, who were left in these different places after majority of their kind of co-religionists had had gone um, and tried to trace some of the issues that they faced. Because I should just say, um, when people have worked on partition in the past, they focused an awful lot on Punjab, which was a real cauldron of of violence. They've looked at Bengal. We actually chose parts of the subcontinent that weren't... um, weren't these places they were they were affected by partition but they weren't um at the forefront of that violence so I looked at Sindh and Karachi Karachi now a very violent place but that's in part the long-term legacy you could argue of of of, of partition the way it, it had an impact on the region Will looked at as it said Uttar Pradesh United Provinces this you know the Gangetic um sort of river, um, the valley. Which, Delhi and its surroundings and then and Taylor down in South India so we we were looking we're trying to sort of see what partition meant in places that are away or were away from the um the centers of 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 real communal violence but which were also important because in Sindh you had the capital in those days of Pakistan Karachi um before the capital transferred to Islamabad in in UP you've got Delhi so so you've got the centres of power alongside the localities, and it was that sort of dialogue between the centre and the localities that we also were exploring.
5: And were you able to trace, um, if, if, if what you're saying is correct, that you know the, the expectations weren't met um, following uh, partition? Were you able to trace uh, how that affected attitudes towards Britain, former imperial? Oh, colony? Britain.
3: What, what, what was um, that part well, of? Well, we didn't look specifically at that because we were. But anecdotally, I think what sometimes, maybe not immediately, but over the longer term, you know, there was a sort of maybe a bit of a sentimental looking back to the British period and a kind of forgetting about what the realities of that period had been like and seeing it as somehow, you know, a, a um, time when um, things worked better, the state operated more fairly. I suppose the British... System, British administration had quite a paternalistic um, approach towards its managing of uh, Indians' lives, and so yes, you do. I mean, I when I, I mean, I interviewed a, a, you know, a lot of people as well, and a lot of elderly people, not surprisingly, and there was this kind of bit of a nostalgic, well, back in the British period, you know, we didn't have these problems, so of kind of forgetting that actually those problems had been there, but because over time. Um, they'd perhaps even, ma- you know, they'd mounted further in, in Pakistan and India. People forgot quite how how much there was a link between the two, you know, either side of partition, yeah.
5: Hmm. If I asked you to identify one main conclusion or one main finding from your project, what, what would it be?
3: Um, I think, f- in a very broad sense, I think it, it well, it's, it's taught us to be very cautious about... Um, looking for sort of looking for things in terms of just change or continuity um more complex much more complex set of dynamics um taking place as you make a transition from so one state or stage to another state or stage but i think for us our probably biggest conclusion broadly speaking was that indians and pakistanis for all the differences and all the all the, the friction and the antipathy, you know, that kind of um, developed, they actually went through very, very similar sets of experiences. They had an awful lot of common in common with each other. They shared, you know, they shared a great deal. And I think that's, that for us is, was, was interesting because people tend to study either India or Pakistan and don't really sort of put them together as much as they could do. They, they gravitate in one direction or the other. And this project taught us that on, on the level of the experience of the ordinary Indian or the ordinary Pakistani, they, they, they face the same, very similar challenges, very similar problems, had very similar um, dilemmas when it came to how they engaged with the new states that, that emerged after independence. And that's quite, a I think, a, a positive conclusion when one's trying to, uh, well... I suppose, get different parts of South Asia to talk to each other and, you know, to um, connect with each other because it's, it's hard today for historians in India and historians in Pakistan to actually meet. Getting visas for them to travel, you know, from, to the opposite country is very difficult. We were privileged because we're sort of outsiders, able to go in and, and make connections.
5: Hmm. So. Well, that, that would be my concluding question, actually. is Obviously, this is a... Uh, uh, now it's a contested place a historian and you know the the story of partition and subsequent to it is is a is a is a difficult story for a lot of people so did it present particular challenges for historians to try and work with what the you know the, the, the resources and 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 to understand those those particular sensibilities
3: um yeah i think obviously asking people to um if you're if we're talking about actually engaging with people who lived through that period, yes, asking them to to talk to you about what might have been very traumatic times for them or their families is is not easy. Um, even people who don't live or didn't you know hadn't experienced partition independence of those early years firsthand you know, they they have a kind of received wisdom that they've you know absorbed from either their own families or wider society, which makes it, um, you know, sensitive, sensitive subject. But then on the other hand, having said that, you also, well, I certainly, and I know Will did too, we found that people were actually very wanting to talk and actually not as reticent as you think they might be. So getting something, I suppose, positive for themselves out of out of being able to tell their own stories yeah. and stories which until really quite recently they hadn't really wanted to share because of the the painfulness of that.
5: But presumably the, the, the problem with oral history when looking back, talking to people who lived through a, a difficult period yeah. like that and then them having lived on and, yes. and, and read reports and seen stuff, oh, is, yeah. that, is that their views are surely... Just, uh, how, 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 how reliable do you think yeah. that their, their testimonies yeah. were?
3: Um, I, I I suppose I don't feel... I I wouldn't want to judge how reliable they are, but I'm not interested in, and I don't think, you know, most people who use oral histories are not necessarily interested in the accuracy of what they're remembering. It's more how they're remembering that you're interested in. And the process of how one remembers is obviously influenced by all the kinds of things that you've just said. Um, So what's interesting is not what they remember, but how they remember it. So, and, and if, I mean, I... Just knowing people in Pakistan um, I know that people at different points in the last sixty seventy years have have explained their decision as refugees to migrate in different ways. i mean one old gentleman um, you know I was told by his 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 children that if you wound the clock back thirty forty years he 'd have been he was giving one sort of justification for this. 30, 40 years later, it's a different justification that he's providing because the context has changed. Whereas 40 years ago, he felt, I mean, this, you know, he felt secure. Urdu, people who migrated from from India, Urdu speakers, what today in Pakistan are often called mahajas, um, they had a secure place within the state. They enjoyed, ac- you know, quite a lot of access to power and influence. So, I mean, that, that Shapes, doesn't it? How you see why you did something thirty, forty years later when they're feeling defensive, marginalised, um, uh, not appreciated, perhaps, then they produce a different, uh, different set of reasons for why they, you know, why something happened or why it shouldn't have happened. So, so I think yes, I think this is my view at least. It's not what people are remembering, but how they're remembering it, which we have to. We have, to, we, have to, we have to focus on otherwise, yes, we, we could be getting very distorted pictures of the past and those past events.
5: That was Dr Sarah Ansari of Royal Holloway University of London. The website for that particular AHRC-funded project is www.leeds.ac.uk forward slash subjects to citizens. Well, that's your lot for this week. We'll return next week when we'll be talking about Scotland's warrior tradition and the importance of the year 1820. In the meantime, do take a look at our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. Plus, don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple Newsstand, respectively. And, indeed, the paper-printed product is still available in shops and by subscription. History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.
1: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.